Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Conquer the Gauntlet Pro, Evan Preparis. I don't have Brenna on the line with me, but I do have another guest. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to give a shout-out to our sponsor for this episode. This episode is brought to you by FitAid. So FitAid's a recovery, a ready-to-drink recovery drink. Uh, if you were doing Spartan races the last couple of years, you're probably familiar with them. Uh, it has a lot of uh, good recovery products in there, including glutamine uh, and then a bunch of anabolic, uh, amino acids, so L-leucine, L-isoleucine, L-valine. So lo- lots of good branched-chain amino acids in there, and it tastes great. So uh, check out FitAid if you want a good ready-to-drink recovery product. And they also are a sponsor of Endure the Gauntlet. So if you're thinking of looking to come out to a Conquer the Gauntlet race, Conquer the Gauntlet Tulsa is a very good option because there are essentially three events going on in one weekend. One is the normal Conquer the Gauntlet race on Saturday, in Tulsa, August 25th. The second is the team event, which is August 26th, which has a cash prize for the elite category and is just a fun event for the open category. And then finally, my 48-hour endurance run, Endure the Gauntlet, is going on all weekend, so starting Friday afternoon and then going through Sunday. All right, let's get to our guest. Uh, today on the podcast, we have Justin Lund, a former semi-pro mountain biker, master's track champion, strength and speed athlete, and he recently raced in the Red Bull 400, which we're going to talk about. So, Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Evan. Thanks for having me on. And I'm going to give you a quick rundown of his bio so people know who he is. So, he's a lifetime athlete with high school PRs in the one mile of 454, and in the, his high school PR in the 5K was 1743. And here's the impressive part, though. He's beaten his PR every year since 2014, and he's now 37 with PRs of 443 and 1658. So we're going to get to that, but he still managed to improving even though he's in his late 30s. He's assistant coach for a school that he went to high school is high school at as a student. Uh, in 2005, he got into mountain biking, uh, got some age group podiums in there, and was reaching the overall podium by the end of his first year. 2006, got into ultra mountain biking, and did that for about five years, doing races ranging from three hours all the way up to 24 hours in length. Uh, had several wins in 12-hour solos, and even finished top five in some 24-hour ones. Also, a uh, USATF Midwest Masters uh, track athlete in the 803K, uh, and was ranked top 20 in the world in his age group. And then after that, he's been involved in OCR since 2016 as part of Strength and Speed in Wisconsin OCR. Uh, usually finishes pretty well in terrain race, top five, and his Red Bull 400 race, he finished the 13th. It was one of the oldest competitors uh, to make the finals. So there's a quick quick rundown of some of your some of your highlights. So again, Justin, welcome. Yeah, thanks, man. All right, so let's start off with the kind of where, where I started off with your bio. So how do you manage to PR mile and 5K every year since 2014, even though you're you know, typically as you get older, those hitting those top speeds and all those fast twitch muscle fibers tend to go away, and it becomes harder to uh, get those fast times. So, how did you manage to do that? 
Well, I, I, it's kind of funny because I, I've always had like these mileage records in high school. Like I'm the first one to ever do 500 miles in a season and and stuff like that. So I think I just kind of wore myself out. So I never really saw my full potential in high school. So, you know, I kept consistent at it. I think I only had like a few year hiatus between that and mountain bike racing and stuff like that. But, you know, when I got into coaching again, it seemed like the time just started melting off like crazy. And it seemed like, you know, I think I started coaching like in 2011 or 2012. But uh, that kind of got me into the right, you know, state of mind. It's only been, what, maybe six years. So I'm still, you know, still improving. Um, hopefully to continue that when I go into my 40s. That's, you know, one of my big goals here is to, uh, you know, keep breaking five miles until I, you know, can't possibly do it anymore. Hopefully well into my 50s, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, so since you're a coach, do you actually do the workouts with your uh, athletes? Or- yeah, I always do the workouts with my athletes. That's the best part about coaching is getting is showing them that, you know, hey, I'm the old guy, but I'm rubbing your face in the dirt just as easily as any of the other kids on the team. And, uh, you know, it kind of puts a little challenge to him, like, hey, I can't let this old guy beat me. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And then you have, like, fast, super fast training partners, right? Because, like, no one's faster than – these high school kids have, like, no body fat and are super light. So, you know, it's a lot easier to propel that over 400 meters, 800 meters than, you know, typically by the time people get in their 30s, they're, they've put on a couple of pounds, whether it be muscle or fat. Yeah, yeah, if we're blasting off 200-meter repeats, yeah, that's when I tend to get in a little bit of trouble with the kids. But, uh, you know, anything over that, and they better watch out. <laughs> gotcha. So you're 37 now. What did you have to change as you got older to continue to PR? Did, or did you change anything? Um, you know, I the biggest thing was is I had to um, really focus on a couple things. My diet, first and foremost, um, you know, this – going out and getting wings every Monday night, you know, just doesn't do the same thing it would, you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> you can just push it out of your mind and get up the next morning and go do a workout and not feel the effects from it. But uh, so now I'm like uh, paying a little bit more attention to my diet. You know, I'm doing a lot more stretching, a lot more foam rolling, a lot more work on like, um, you know, agility, flexibility, hurdle drills, things like that to really keep me loose, especially in the hip flexors. Um, and that seems to be helping a lot. That, I think that's what's kind of keeping me competitive is uh, keeping the injuries at bay and, you know, changing your diet up too. Gotcha. I forgot what I was going to ask. Give me a second. Um... It's the food coma, man. I know you just got out of dinner. Would you go, like, a cheesecake factory or something or what? <laughs> Actually, I went to Texas Roadhouse. I got salmon. <laughs> I got salmon, vegetables, and a sweet potato was my dinner. Oh, attaboy. That, so. See, that's the way to go. We had spaghetti here, so. <laughs> nice. Uh, oh, I was going was gonna to say. All right, so – now I hesitate. I I'm hesitant to ask this question because, um, you know, diet opinions are just like assholes. Everyone has one, and they all stink. Um, but I'm gonna ask anyway. So, what's your go-to diet, or what's your dieting method or nutrition method? I gotta stay on top of the carbs. I need the carbs. The carbs help me function basically. With all carbs, I'm not doing much of anything. Um, so I'm trying to keep a good balance there. Trying to keep a good balance of protein, dietary fat. Um, you know, stick to my recovery drinks, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, a huge shout out to Carbo Rocket for that. They got me hooked up with all sorts of different products that, you know, they really helped me after those tough workouts, especially at my age. I need all the rebound I can get. <laughs> gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about training. So when you're training for something like an 800-meter race, uh, what does your weekly schedule look like? 
it's funny that 800 meter race kind of happened on accident. I mean, I was just kind of looking for a workout to do, and it was down by uh, my uncle down in Milwaukee at this uh, college called uh, Carthage Carthage College, and uh, it just happened that there was a Midwest Masters track meet there. I signed up, went down the next day, and um, hopped in and just right in the middle of my training. I, I did. I was training for more of like a like a mile or 5k at that point, um, but the the I guess the meat and potatoes of it was mostly like just off season fart like runs. I just do a ton of those from like November to mid February. I'm just constantly doing fart legs instead of hard on intervals. So I think that's what kind of you know helped me get through something like that. And my time wasn't great, but I mean it was enough to get me the win. <laughs> so I guess that works out in my favor. And if you, you don't show up, you can't beat me. That is true. And you signed up last minute, so there was probably some. Some guy that was had his heart set on that race, and you just came out of nowhere, and you had no idea who you were, and you crushed his soul. Yeah, nobody had a clue. <laughs> nobody had a clue who I was. Half the people that would listen to this podcast probably don't even know who I am, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, I like I like bringing on new. This is one of the points that I like about our podcast is I try not to bring on the same guests that every other OCR focused podcast has, and I think you have a lot of great experience, specifically in short distance running. And then also in ultra-distance mountain biking, I think, which adds a new new flavor, a new topic of discussion to the uh, the training perspective of this podcast. So, all right, so let's let's go with, uh, yeah, let's, sure, say, let's say not 800 meters, let's go with another short track-type event. So, I don't know, 400, 1,200, give me, give me something, what would a, a weekly schedule look like for someone who's preparing for something that's ultra-short like that? Okay, um, let me do the mile, because the mile was something I was uh, really working on this spring. Um, every year I like to enter a college indoor, like a D3 college in, indoor um, here in Wisconsin and at UW-Stevens Point. Uh, they let you enter unattached. Um, and so the, the, the focus of my training for something like that was a lot of, like, fast, hard intervals with short restoration in between. Um, I got some great help from guys like Dennis Welch and, uh, and Yancey Culp. Uh, give me really good pointers on these every minute on the minute sprints. I mean, they were just absolutely phenomenal. Um, going back to last year, how this all started was I scheduled for a super, I think it was in Chicago, the Spartan super. And we had to work shutdowns. So I, my vacation got canceled on me, but then there was the green Bay lamp or the green Bay Lambo sprint, the stadium sprint. So I'm like, well, I got to change gears. <laughs> what can I do? And he gave me these workouts. They're just, uh, you run 200 meters basically as hard as you can, and your rest is the duration of the minute. So right. you run a 40, you only got 20 seconds rest before you're going on another one, and you just keep doing that until you fail. So that was, you know, the hard workout of the week. So, like, I would do that on – always I do that on a Tuesday. Um, Mondays would be, like, my day off. Uh, a Wednesday would be like a recovery run or depending on how I feel, maybe get on the mountain bike and shred some trails for a while. And then Thursday I would come back with some longer intervals, like maybe, you know, anywhere from 800 to 1200. And then Friday would be like another recovery day. Saturday, I don't know. what. <laughs> Saturday depends on the week. I'm either on a longer recovery run, like 45 minutes to an hour. And then Sunday's my long run, like ninety minute plus. Okay. So that so that was kind of that's kind of like the basic makeup of it. It changes, you know, for each cycle, of course. But like that that was kind of like a typical week. 
So basically one short interval session a week, one longer interval session a week, and then one long aerobic run, and then uh, recovery runs in between. And rest yeah. Day. Yeah. And some low-impact mountain bike or cyclocross bike on the gravel trails or something. Gotcha. Some, something to keep the impact down a little bit, too. The pool, if I can get into the pool, do some aqua jogging. Gotcha. And for weekly mileage for some, for something like the one mile, what are you, what would you be peaking at or averaging? I think at the height of it, I'm probably getting up to like maybe, maybe just a hair under fifty. Okay, so that's still pretty for, for some people that might be that's might be a lot, right? So that's that's still good volume even for something as short as a one mile race. Oh yeah, I mean especially especially for up here in Wisconsin, that's crazy volume, especially when you're doing like this in like January, you know, you mostly, like, yeah, like in December, January, a little bit of February. That's usually when the college indoor stuff starts up here. And then how does that change as you switch gears from something like a one, from something like longer to like a 3k or a 5k distance? Yeah. And that's, then that, that's typically what happens too. I get done with my mile races and I jump right into the longer stuff. So, um, let's see, like I'd go from that to like a race in March. I have my two, two maybe three races in february and then head into march and then that would probably be like a 8k high mile whatever um and i would always take it after that you know mile cycle i'd probably take like a solid week or so on lower mileage just to kind of recoup um get some better lifting in there some quality you know squats deadlifts that kind of thing just kind of wake myself up again and then and hit the train hard until I get that AK. And that's probably like usually my first A race of the year is like in March. Gotcha. Now going, so the, a lot of your races seem to be on the short side, super fast. And then you somehow got involved into ultra distance mountain biking. So how did that transition occur going from track to ultra mountain biking? <laughs> I have no idea how that happened. Um, <laughs> I was having some real nasty tendonitis issues. I guess that's kind of how it all started. Um, they kind of took me out for a few years. I didn't run, I didn't bike, I didn't do anything except for drink beer and eat tacos, I think, for like a solid two or three years. Um, and I just kind of started Google searching some ways to get back into shape without, you know, all the impact and things like that. And um, found that the Wisconsin Mountain Bike Series is actually one of the biggest state series in the country. So that kind of piqued my interest, got a mountain bike, did some training, probably not the best training in the world. And I entered my first race in 2005 and got my ass pretty much handed to me on a platter. It was pretty ugly. And then the next week I finished podium in my age group. Now, granted, that was beginner class, but it, um, it didn't take me very long to move up from the sport and then the competitive class and then eventually elite. Gotcha. Now, is, is mountain biking like OCR where you can kind of sign up, anyone can sign up for any kind of wave or do you need to qualify and then move up? You do need to upgrade. Um, that wasn't, you had to show certain results in certain events, and then they would, you know, either approve it or deny you. Um, at the time, it was semi-pro, and if you showed enough decent results in sport and competitive, competitive was like the upper level of sport. Sport was actually divided into two classes in our series just because of the amount of people there were. Um, so if you, you entered that competitive class, and you did well on there, you're pretty much guaranteed a semi-pro slot, which is now, I believe, like Cat 1, I think they call it. Um, and then eventually you'd end up pro. 
Gotcha. And now, is there another hot topic in OCR, right? Is there a governing body that's you're applying to, or is it for per individual race? So, like, if I want to do race X, I need to send in my results from whatever I've done in the past, and they decide if I'm, you know, pro level or whatever. That is an excellent question. Here's how it shakes out. So, you got USA Cycling. I'm <laughs> I'm kind of biting my tongue on what my real opinion is about USA Cycling, but. Um, well, I don't. Do, I don't think we have many cyclists listening to this podcast, so you can you can tear <laughs> into them. I mean, I, <laughs> okay, fine. I typically refer to USA Cycling as you suck, but I mean, you know, <laughs> who's splitting hairs here? <laughs> yeah, but really, I mean, they they cater a lot to just making money for themselves and their executives, and it's like you rarely see any of it giving given back to the grassroots part of the sport, and that's kind of what's you know the shame of it all is. Um, you don't see a lot of things being done with the youth with USA Cycling. It's mostly done with local programs. And it's kind of a shame of what the, these local programs have to do to, you know, get bikes for the kids and things like that and, you know, develop their own high school leagues and things of that nature. Um, when USA Cycling could be doing a heck of a lot more to support them. They just choose not to. Mm-hmm. But going back to what we were talking about with this, uh, this structure, the one thing that they do a really good job with is um, allowing you to get, like, a, a one-day license all the way up until you register for a Category 1 or Pro race. Now, you can't just register day of with a one-day membership for a Pro. They won't let you do that. Um, in fact, I don't even think they do for Cat 1 anymore either. Uh, but for sport and beginner class, you can show up day of, pay a $10 fee, and you can race all you want. Now, you get your, you do your races, um, anything that's USA Cycling sanctioned, you do your races, your results are, are automatically attached to your number, and if you get X amount of podiums with X amount of people in the category, I mean, if you take first out of second, I don't think they're going to really go, oh, wow, this guy killed it. No. But they do kind of keep track of, you know, who, where you raced, who you raced, and how many of them were you know, in attendance, and, um, you know, if you post enough results, and I can't remember what that number is, if it was, like, you needed four top fives or something like that to get your upgrade. I don't know if that's the case, but it was something like that. Then you get to move up to the next class. Um, some of them, they actually force you to move up. They're not real fond of sandbaggers. That's the part I thought was really cool about USA Cycling's um, take on that. So if you're doing beginner class and you're just mopping the fourth and you're like, okay, dude, all right, you, you got to move up now. This is just ridiculous. Um, but uh, as far as the pro card goes, yeah, you got you really got to earn your stripes to get that card for sure. That's you just don't walk up and get one of those. Gotcha. Yeah, so I think it brings up an interesting point. So there is a governing USA Cycling is the governing body, correct for all. They they are yep they are the governing body. Okay, so I think I think just well, again comparing comparing it to OCR, if we want something similar where we're having classes and people are moving up, you're gonna have to give away some control, and there's gonna have to be some sort of governing body to help kind of organize and orchestrate that. So, um, and like like you said, it's not all sunshines and rainbows. You know, like you were complaining about um, some of the things USA Cycling has done as far as supporting local programs, so. Um, yeah, just and something... selection of their Olympic team. 
Yeah, just something to yeah. It's <laughs> just something to consider as people kind of you know look to push the sport OCR forward, and you know the the positives and negatives of having a governing body and you know some how that might change things. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm totally on board with that. If you if OCR really wanted to do that, they need one governing body, not like the 25 of them or whatever there are out there right now. I mean, there's a lot of groups out there that are like. USA OCR and US OCR. I, I don't. I'm like, okay, which one's the real deal? <laughs> we just need one sanctioning body, in my opinion, and they need to be ones calling all the shots. And yep. That's, uh, tr- uh, I agree. In in theory, I think it plays out less well in reality. Um, you know, you have multiple people vying for that position, and then you have a bunch of companies that are independent and don't want to be governed. Um, because again, because those companies are, that's their livelihood. That's their profit. Right. So like you, they don't really want to be told what to do by some sort of governing body. Um, unless there's some sort of positive feedback. And that's one of the things I think that Adrian Bihanada has done well with OCR world championships, right? He's created this positive feedback loop where if you're, if your race is a qualifier, you know, it gets you into his race for the OCR world championships and at the same time, that promotes people showing up to your event. So it kind of creates a you know positive feedback loop where more people are showing up to their events so they can go to the championships and, uh, you know, vice versa. So Yeah, that dude's got it right. He's doing the right thing, I think. And, you know, if, if you get it like a board, of, a board of directors where all the major players can have a role on the rules and that kind of thing, that could work well for all the athletes involved and especially weed out some of the stuff you're seeing in the elite waves at your bigger races too. So I think it's nothing but positive that they can come to a solution where, you know, the guys at Spartan, the guys at Tough Mudder, the guys at Terrain Race, I mean, the guys at CTG, they can all get together and at least come to some sort of agreement and, you know, make this thing happen. Because that's what it's going to take to really make it an Olympic sport, I think. Yeah, well, then there's also the the aspect of do, do people want to make it Olympic sport? You know, I think there's, oh there's, yeah, <laughs> there's the yeah that, we can go down that whole that whole rabbit hole too. Um, but we'll we'll pass. Oh, well, let's keep let's keep back get back on track with the podcast. All right. <laughs> yeah, I'm cool. Let's do so, it. So, <laughs> uh, kind of the highlight of that is it's easier said than done, and when you actually start looking at you know uh, people's perspectives and you know, what they're going to gain and lose from the situation. It doesn't always play out so neatly. Uh, and not everyone is, not everyone's in OCR just because, you know, for the love of sport, uh, at the end of the day, just like anything else, it is a business for a lot of people. All right. Ultra mountain biking. Back to that. So give me a fueling strategy for something like a 12 or 24 hour mountain bike race. Oh, oh man, did I manage to screw that one up? All right. So when I first got into this, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I think I was like maybe, 23 24 at the time and not a clue so i line up for my first race and keep in mind that this is my first 24 solo race and i mean the best of the best were there in the country it was the national championships i am literally armed with an you know a, a crate of like pop tarts and some insure and <laughs> nice i mean some horribly nasty just like I think it was a Gatorade endurance formula. I don't even know if that's still around. But yeah, I sure. had like a humongous jug of that that I thought was going to be my saving grace, and I ended up with the worst heartburn on the planet by about two o'clock in the morning. 
and ended up sitting on my butt for about three hours. Um, but it didn't stop me from turning out laughs. I, I, I got up and finished the race. It was no problem. I mean, I think I did like 20 or 13 laps in 24 hours and probably like 200 some miles, which is okay. Good enough to get me top 20 in the country. But uh, the strategy was kind of like, you know, you, you eat your lunch on the bike, you eat your dinner on the bike. The trick was just to stay out of the pits as much as possible. The second you sit down, you're going to want to keep sitting down. So it was just fuel and fuel and pedal at the same time as much as you can. Not much different than ultra OCR. The, you know, the longer you're in the pit, that's longer you're going to have to make up moving forward. Now, did you eat a lot of... Once you got your fueling strategy a little more dialed in, did you end up going with a lot of solid foods, or did you stick with a liquid diet mostly? I stayed with a liquid diet. Um, I found a drink that gave me pretty much the the calories, the electrolytes, the protein, um, everything I needed um, when I needed it. But I would eat my meals like I would as if it were a normal day. You know what I mean? You know what I mean there? The example: What would you What would you eat? For example. The biggest thing that seemed to work for me, because during these races, I just have a hard time. Like, I, it, to take one bite of the sandwich would take me, like, three minutes just to chew it and get on to the next bite. I don't know what it is, but that's just the way it worked for me. Um, so PB&J, that seemed to do the trick. Um, maybe some banana slices on it or strawberries or something like that just to kind of mix it up and, you know, nice little surprise to look forward to as you're going. That seemed to that seemed to be the only thing that would actually be tolerable. But I would also like after maybe four or five hours, I'd pound like a bottle of like Boost or something like that. Mm. Okay, so not not that much different from my fueling strategy. So I go for ultra OCR. I go mostly liquid diet, Perpetuum, high nutrition Perpetuum, uh, carb fat protein blend, and then I try. I, I actually go with that sometimes twelve to twenty hours before I switch to any solid food. And then for solid foods, I usually do peanut butter and jelly sandwich or uh, like a turkey sandwich. Usually like a small piece of – it's like a half sandwich. It's not a full sandwich that I shove in my mouth yeah. at the end of the lap. So. I'd put it in Dixie cups, like break up the sandwich, put it in Dixie cups, and throw it in the, bike, in the back pocket of my bike jersey. Ah. So as, as I get on the course, I get comfortable, just take it out of my pocket and basically drink my sandwich. And it would just, I don't know, it just worked perfect. <laughs> yeah, see, you can't, can't so much do that with the ultra OCR due to the mud and the, uh, no. the wetness. <laughs> so we, I go with the Ziploc bags, and my wife developed, my wife has a pit crew strategy. She developed, um, so she cuts the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches one way, like diagonally, and then she cuts the turkey ones like a cross. So they're like a rectangle instead of a triangle. So even, yeah, in, the, even in the dark, she can just reach in and feel around and grab the appropriate sandwich. Um, so the, the best investment I made for this whole thing was, you know, those shoe carriers that you put on the back of a door. Yep. Throw one of those in your pit and number each one. And that's what you take each lap. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I bag things in Ziploc bags, uh, numbered by lap. And then my, when my dad's picker, he wears like a fishing vest with like every pocket has something different in it. So I know where where to grab if I need something, but good stuff. All right. Um, now with ultra mountain biking, the first thing that comes to mind is how badly your ass must hurt. Like that's all I can think about 
after if I spend like a long day on a bike, all I can think about is how painful it is to sit on it for longer. So, <laughs> how do you deal with that, or is it just something that it just gets it just hardens over time, and then you just you know kind of deal with it? There is no getting used to it. There's no getting over it in time. It hurts. It's painful. It sucks. Um, you know, you can put on as much chamois butter. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but anyway, it's of course, uh, yep. It's, yeah, you can put as much of that on as you want. It's going to wear off, and you're going to have to reapply, and that is the part where it makes it ten times worse, is having to reapply it. There's been numerous times that, you know, you go to reapply, and, like, the pain from it is, like, borderline nauseous. I mean, it's just terrible. Gotcha. All right, you so just, you, you push through. You just deal with it, just like anything else. Gotcha. Um, yeah, they make, they make a leaf for that kind of stuff. I mean, they kind of takes down the inflammation stuff a little bit not perfect but i mean it can help just don't overdo it and get stomach issues and keep playing with that stuff but yeah all right um let's hear about your opinion on cycling or mountain biking as cross training for ocr oh that's a good one i think it is a great way to cross train for ocr um, especially if you're doing races where you're messing around with, uh, you know, bushwhacking trails or running on single track, because I think it really helps you pick out your line. Um, if you got rocks, you got roots, you got things like that, you, you're going to be eyeing up where you're going to be putting your feet. It's no different than mountain biking. You're wanna, you want to put your tire where you want to go. You don't want to look where you don't want to go because that's where you're going to end up, and you end up doing what I do sometimes and putting the bike in the water. But <laughs> um, I think that part of it is real crucial. I mean, it really helps with your your coordination, especially on the nasty off-camber type stuff where you got to pick your line, you bounce from, like, the side of a berm into the middle of the trail and just keep going. I mean, it, it's definitely useful. And, um, and depending on the bike that you ride, I mean, it could be a really good grind for your quads and stuff too. Or if you use, like, clipless pedals, you know, that push and pull. Yeah, it'll it'll definitely work you without the impact. You just gotta find the right balance. Now my bikes are a little different. I don't ride a standard geared mountain bike. I mean, all all the bikes I've owned is uh, are single speeds and no suspension at all. That sounds rough. And it is. <laughs> all right, so definitely some good information there. Some good uh, good takeaways for the OCR athletes and on the podcast listening. Now let's talk about kind of the the big reason we wanted to get you on the podcast was the Red Bull 400. So explain the race format, and we'll go from there. Okay. First of all, let me start off by saying that was probably the coolest race I've done in a long time. You would think 400 meters up a ski jump is, you know, you know, five ten minutes you're done, right? No, that's not necessarily the case. Um, what these guys did is they had. They capped off the registration at 500 people. They threw you into groups of 25. So the day before, you got your heat sheet. You found, you, you know, I found your name. There's your wave. That's the time you should be there by maybe like an hour beforehand to get your registration, blah, blah, blah. Move on. Jump in your race and uh, make the ascent to the top. So so there's that, that, that beginning part of it. Um. So you're standing at so okay the the Red Bull 400 you're basically taking off from the bottom of a ski jump bowl and you head straight up the ski jump and Copper Peak up in the UP in Michigan 
that is actually the steepest one in the entire series. Um, I think it averaged like averaged like thirty eight percent incline. Um, and on this course, it was actually a grass landing area, so it wasn't like artificial turf like what a lot of these ski jumps have, like Park City or Whistler. Um, they had a cargo net that you would actually use to pull yourself up because it was just so loose and rocky and just gnarly. So that's like the first three hundred or first two hundred meters or so, and then they transitioned transitioned you onto the ski jump itself. Now that is probably where the average pitch probably made up its ground because the first part of it was probably maybe like twenty five percent or so, but the ski jump itself was much much steeper. The kind of steep where you would you could hit, you know bear crawl effectively and make it up. So let's go over what were your expectations going into the race versus how it actually played out. <laughs> my expectation was to sprint up that hill like a champion reality you're crawling up the hill like a slug and you're getting oxygen when you get to the top <laughs> it was it was insane like they were the cut, they had a cutoff if you didn't make it to the halfway point in 10 minutes okay this is a 400 meter race if you didn't make it to the 200 meter mark in 10 minutes you're going back down the hill you're turning around you're going back down that's so, crazy yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's 10 minutes up a 200 meters. Now, granted, we weren't doing that. We were going much, much quicker. But I was like a four, just under 450. And this was a guy from the U.S. ski team, just phenomenal athlete, you know. And uh, I didn't come in at 450. I came in more like 650. <laughs> and uh, uh, qualified 16 for the final. Nice. Definitely a cool race. Definitely, if you've never seen, if you're listening to this, if you've never seen pictures of what the Red Bull 400 looks like. Google it. I'll try to include some with the podcast uh, cover for this episode. That's a very unique event. If assuming someone's listening and wants to get ready to do this event someplace else, what advice do you have for others getting ready? You know, I think the biggest thing is to just walk an incline as steep as you possibly can. Just walk it, walk it, walk it, walk it. Do it two, three times a week. If that's your main race, that's your main goal, that's the way, that's what you're looking forward to the most that year. Um, for me, I kind of trained through it, and I did run some hills and things like that just to kind of prepare, but it wasn't like, I don't know, it wasn't like I was really gunning for it, but I think next year eh, I might have a change of heart there and probably really go after it. Um, anytime you can walk stairs, walk stairs. I mean, that's the kind of incline you're going to experience. Cause, and that's, and if you can skip stairs, do that too, because you're going to be power walking quite a bit. And by skipping stairs, you're kind of mimicking that motion. It's, it's a very tough race. There are lots of people getting oxygen at the top of the jump. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it'll turn you inside out. That's for sure. Don't take it lightly. Don't think it's 400 meters quick to the top. It's not. Yeah, I mean, if it's taking you several minutes to get to the top, I mean, you can just take that as an example for how how hard it is. And especially you look at some of your previous race times for shorter distance races, you know, like you, you've you got a strong fast twitch um, muscle and anaerobic system there, and it's still taking you six minutes to get up to the top. That's, that's a pretty serious incline. And for those of you who, you know, train on a treadmill at home, you know, most treadmills typically don't go past like 15%. So if, if you're doing Red Bull 400 and it's doing 25 to 38% grade, you know, 
you know, run 15% grade for a while on your treadmill and let me know how, let me know how fast you're moving. Yeah, that's probably the best way to do it. All right. And then for, so you ended up doing a qualifying and then a finals. Did you go all out for both? What was your, or did you try to hold back? See, you know, the original email and the whole description of how that race went, they said they're going to take the top two out of each wave. So I was kind of concerned, like, oh, okay, what if I end up in, like, a fully loaded wave and I get 10th, and it's probably would have been good for 10th place overall. They changed it day of, and they took the top, I think, 25 times. So, yeah, you had to go all out in both rounds because you didn't know if you were going to get beat on time from a late wave. Gotcha. Yeah, with that many waves, you can't, you really can't risk it. Yeah, my recovery time was okay enough i I raced at two o'clock i had come back again at 4 30 so yeah by the time it was all said and done i probably got like hour and 45 minutes of actual actual recovery before i had to start warming up again and what was your recovery strategy between the two races get fluids in as quick as you can stretch out roll out um jog jog downhill for a little while to kind of loosen things up get that range of motion back and then just elevate, get your legs up on the fence, and just sit there and stare at the clouds for a while. And then one more, what was your two times between the, what was your qualifying and then final time? Uh, qualifying time was 6.55, that was good enough for 16th, and my final time I think was 7.10. Okay, so a tiny bit slower. But... Yeah, a tiny bit slower, I mean, there's a few things I could have done differently, I, and the cargo net got a little bit jammed. I could have went to the far right side and made move, but I don't know. I just kind of got sucked into the experience and just, you know, cruised up until I got to the jump, and that's kind of when I started catching people. Okay, for our metal whores slash uh, swag aficionados, any they give you any T-shirt or metal or anything like that? They, they gave me a pretty sweet T-shirt, but I was surprised. Like all the other races that they showed – um, you know, like in the YouTube videos and stuff like that, they, they they were showing medals, but we didn't have one. Did they give medals for overall or no? Uh, yeah, they got medals overall. Well, I should say they got nice trophies overall, and uh, the winner got um, let's see, I think it was a thousand dollars. Okay. No, uh, third got two fifty. Not not bad for five minutes of work, although <laughs> it's fairly awful work, but yeah. And I'm sure you can imagine as many as much Red Bull as you wanted, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm I'm sure people are crushing Red Bull and then being like, I'm just gonna go knock out this 400 meter sprint with my heart rate doing like 220 the whole time. Yeah, it was crazy. I can't believe how many people I saw like dump a can in the garbage and then head to the start line. I'm like, what are you doing? You're gonna die. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I'm. What I was really surprised with is that when we got to the start line, there were supposed to be 25 people there, and I think maybe maybe 20 showed up. So there was a lot of people that qualified for this final, and they're like, nope, nope, once it was good enough for me, I'm done, I'm out of there, peace out. <laughs> That's pretty funny. All right, so any other final thoughts on the Red Bull 400? Oh, I definitely recommend it. It's a, it's a unique challenge. I mean, if you're into doing things that are different outside of just you know running your 5Ks, running your OCRs, doing your bike races, things like that, Put this one on your calendar. You won't regret it. It's a great venue, awesome event, um, really cool challenge. I really the box. Nice. A uh, f- couple final questions, and then we'll call it a day for the podcast. So, as a high level athlete, kind of crossing over into OCR, what challenges did you face? The biggest thing, um, 
Grip strength, man. Grip, 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 grip. I'm still working grip. I continue to work grip. I probably always will grip, even if I don't raise the OCR anymore, because I know I don't want to go back to that place where I was. <laughs> where, like, yeah, even deadlifts will test your grip. I mean, that was kind of where I was. And now I'm very much more confident in my ability with the grip. Um, being lighter, I think I think the heaviest I get during seasons, maybe like 155. Um, so, like, things like the bucket carry, things like, I wouldn't even say the double sandbag. I'm actually pretty solid at that. But the bucket carry, that one just kills me. Still working on it. That's something that I think, you know, crossing over, work on your low back strength, work on your grip. That'll probably get you... That'll make up a lot of places for you where you're running camp. All right, sounds good. And then what, uh, for your personal future plans, anything big planned for this year or maybe next year? Yeah, this year um, you'll see me at the the Minnesota Sprint, of course. That's new race of the Mountain Series. Um, I plan on doing that. Do we even call it the NBC race anymore? Is it even on TV? Uh, no, it's not on NBC. I think it's just called the U.S. <laughs> the series. U.S. I think the U.S. Uh, series is the appropriate title. Someone's probably yelling at their their phone right now that I'm off, but it's not on NBC. It's a uh, U.S. Point Series, I believe. That's what okay. I go with. Yeah, well, that works. Anyway, I'm gonna be at the Chicago one for that. Um, Enter the Elite Wave, and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Spartan racing. I've always had something go on. Um, ever since I entered the Elite Wave, it's just not been my luck lately. First time I entered the <laughs> The elite race was at the Minnesota Sprint a couple of years ago. It dislocated my shoulder twice and managed only to get 44th out of it. Wow. Uh, any plans to go to Noram? Maybe throw down at the 3K? It seems like that would be right up your alley. You know, as much as I like to think that my uh, fast twitch is still there, I think a 3K I'd just get buried. Honestly, I think I'm pretty good from 10K up. That seems to be my money distance. And I think we'll find that out when the Super comes around. Uh, yeah, I think uh, me and Jordan will be running that together. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Referencing Jordan Buscemi, who we've had on this podcast before, uh, Wisconsin OCR athlete, very good, dominates most of the rest races in the Midwest. So, Yep, and part of Wisconsin OCR. That's right. Before we go, any final shout-outs you want to give, family, friends, sponsors, or whatever? Yeah, definitely, man. Um, there's a lot, I wouldn't say a lot of people I'd like to thank. There's tons of people I'd like to thank, but... Um, definitely, uh, you know, thanks to Jordan Buscemi, of course, you know, he's been a very great inspiration and motivator and keeping me moving along. And then of course, you know, there's, uh, my, uh, my fellow coach, John Zulsdorf, and he's the guy that got me into this, uh, whole fitness lifestyle. He taught me very early on when I was running for him that this isn't just, you know, a four year high school sport. This can be part of your life if you choose to be. Um, so, you know, I definitely thank him and, um, you know, a big shout-out to Carbo Rocket. They're supporting Wisconsin OCR and, um, you know, giving us a lot of goodies to keep us hydrated and fueled and ready to go on race day. And um, definitely like to thank, you know, big shout-out to you, Evan, Team Strength and Speed. I mean, that's an awesome platform for people to share their training, their ideas, um, you know, their thoughts on the OCR scene and things like that. Always a great conversation with uh, you and the rest of the group. And then, um, of course, you know, the Dennis Welch Endurance Endurance Project. Um, this guy's got a great training program. I definitely encourage you guys to check him out. I mean, for 20 bucks a month, you can't beat it. Um, he has some awesome programming, and he's definitely kicked my butt this week, I'll tell you that right now. 
that's pretty much it. Nice. Well, uh, thank you for the kind words, and I agree. I'm going to give a quick shout-out to the rest of the Strength and Speed people. Uh, by the time this comes out, this will be a couple weeks old, but we recently had Kat Radcliffe, who was on the OCR World Championship team, qualify for American Ninja Warrior Finals in Dallas. So that was just aired last night as of this recording, which is awesome. Yeah, uh, Jordan killed it, man. Yeah, I'm super, I was super excited. I didn't know if she was going to make the finals because her... Uh, I think she fell a little bit early for what she would consider. Um, yeah, did you see her time, though? <laughs> I think the time yeah. is what kept her in her. She flew through that course. Yeah. So if you, if you look at some of her videos she posts on Instagram, like, she's got some crazy grip strength. You know, like, absolutely phenomenal. Um, but definitely shout-out to Kat. Great job for making the finals. Looking forward to watching it. And then Jordan Smith, uh, one of the ultra runners who was inter- interviewed in the back of Mud Run Guide's Ultra OCR Bible, he also ran across the state of Michigan at one point. Uh, he did some like crazy trek across New Zealand. Uh, so we're looking to get him on the podcast at some point. Uh, just got married, so congratulations to him. And uh, that's about it. If uh, you're looking for more good information, head over to Strength and Speed. I just updated the website with some new discount codes for some of the sponsors of Endure the Gauntlet and put some new products up in the store. So go ahead and check that out. Justin, thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, definitely some good information. I appreciate you taking the time out. And, uh, yeah, we'll uh, catch up with you later. All right. Thanks for having me on, Evan.